Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm thrilled to be talking about the Peacock Stop Animation series In The Know. We are joined today by creator, showrunner, executive producer, and actor Zach Woods, and creator, showrunner, executive producer, Brandon Gardner. And for both of you, with the central character of Lauren, I wanted to start by talking about how, in essence, you wanted to determine what is his level of success as a radio host at NPR? Because, um, you know, there's such a thing made of him being the third most popular host. So you didn't want to kind of give him the, the grandiose of being the top guy at the station. You wanted him to have something to still strive for, you know, and even just the reference to the show having about 30,000 listeners when he's trying to kind of pump himself up a little bit more. So how did that play into the character and the narrative of the show for you both? I think Lauren's level of success has been and will always be never enough. I think he's someone where even if he was the top of the heap, he would still have a kind of gnawing feeling of inadequacy that no amount of adulation could ever uh, soothe. But as it turns out, he doesn't have that much adulation. He's he's kind of a, a third rung guy. Um I think the kind of tempest in a teacup part of that world was funny to us. You know, like we, I remember um, talking to a professor uh, who who worked at a, a small liberal arts school, and him saying like, "It's like Game of Thrones. It's just, but it's like this tiny like kind of little hallway with all these soft spoken professors, but they're just gunning for each other. It's so competitive. It's so backbitey. It's so intense. Even though it's just like you know some small college in the middle of nowhere. And I think Lauren has that kind of syndrome of just feeling immensely competitive and immensely threatened and carrying that with him into any environment he he moves through. Right. He, he's a character who at times is very comfortable kind of saying everything that he's thinking and, and talking about himself quite a lot. Um, but at the same time, he's full of insecurities and fallibilities. And so how did you set about finding the space of here's where we want him to have a little bit of self-confidence and here's where we just want him to crumble the moment someone pokes a hole in it all for him? There's, I have a friend named Carson Mel who actually did some uh, punch-ups for us on the show. And he said this thing to me once that really stuck with me, where he said the only non-obnoxious response to being shy is acting shy. In other words, if you feel shy and you do anything except just be shy... It, it can quickly curdle into something awful because that's when people have bravado or they stop listening to each other or they become these kind of like performers of their own shtick or I don't know. And so I think Lauren, it's a natural, the kind of hubris of Lauren and the insecurity of Lauren are natural bedfellows. You know, I think they, they pair inevitably or something. I don't know. Yeah. Was that the same for you, Brandon, and just kind of like the necessity of those two things coexisting from very early on in the development process? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's with all the characters, but maybe with Lauren especially, it, Zach and I see so much of ourselves in them. And it's really easy with Lauren to to think of things that I have said to people and be like, oh, that was just because I was nervous or that's just because I was insecure. I wish I hadn't said that. And so a lot of times, even when Lauren is is being very revealing about himself in a way that's probably unprofessional for, for someone who's supposed to be interviewing people, it's always under the, the guise of someone who wants people to see him a certain way. And so desperately because he so wants to be included. And we talk a lot about this show 
it's it's an interesting show to come out in, in a time when people are so politically divided and, and, and sort of set into tribes. And I think a lot of people's worst behavior comes from just wanting to belong to their tribe and, 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 and maybe even being afraid to point out the ways in which their group is acting a little ridiculously because they're like, well, I can't step outside of this. I need to be included because I'm afraid what will happen to me if I'm not. And I think that a lot of Lauren's worst behavior comes from him being so desperate to be um, loved. And I think like one of my favorite videos online, this woman goes around and she's just like, she points the camera at people and she's like, hey, I'm doing this project today where I film people who are beautiful. And then the people like take a minute and they like, what? And she'll go, you're be- I think you're beautiful. And it's people of all different ages and, and body types and races and, you know, genders and everything. But it's so fascinating because the second they realize what she's saying, they become beautiful. It's really remarkable. They either get shy in a way that's really beautiful or you can see them kind of like bloom a little bit and that's beautiful or they start to feel that kind of excitement and then they get a little shy. And it's so lovely to see like all this is when a stranger tells them that they're beautiful, that they immediately deliver on that description without having any choice in the matter. They just become beautiful. And I think so many people feel that they are at their core unlovable and that makes them behave in ways that are very unlikable. Um, And I think that Lauren is, is like that. If, if Lauren knew that he was lovable just by virtue of being like a person, you know, then he wouldn't have to do such a frantic tap dance to impress or people or, you know, get them to think he's hot shit. I can't wait to go find that video on the internet as soon as we finish talking now. <laughs> it's lovely. You- and and also in terms of just talking about how you said about thinking, what are the antagonistic elements? You know, it's definitely got that feel of, you know, they can trade shots at each other all day long, but the moment that someone from outside of those four walls walks in and says anything, they all are there to staunchly defend one another. And obviously it's, you know, it's a workplace comedy, so they wouldn't necessarily cross paths or be friends outside of working together if that wasn't bringing them all into the same room together. And so how did you set about finding what do you want the levels of antagonism between them to look like because the stakes are never that high it's never life and death amongst them i don't think we necessarily sort of designed what the antagonism would be but we tried to think of of who would actually populate a a a space like that slash like who is someone in life that we think would be interesting to be represented in that space and and the very beginning of the process when we were talking to the writers one of the first things we all talked about is which characters we related to and in what ways. And so I think when they are being antagonistic to each other, it's just coming sort of like we were saying before, it's just coming out of uh, how they want to be seen, what their own insecurities are. And they, they come out sort of naturally as well as like the, the, like the chase character is someone he's, he's sort of this fratty uh, sort of like Jim bro, but in a lot of ways, he's the least judgmental. He's the person who sort of accepts everyone for who they are. And even though he says things that are, are inappropriate for, for probably anywhere, but definitely a, a work environment, he's also someone who just loves people and, and, and accepts them. And so uh, he ends up being like an interesting sort of companion for Sandy, who's the character Mike Judge voices. And it, it is such a weirdo sort of outside society person, but they sort of find each other because neither of them judge judges each other. 
we described him a lot in the room as like the alcoholic Jesus kind of like, like alcoholic, like um, sexually omnivorous <laughs> messianic character who is just there to bestow everlasting love on everyone in between shots of whatever like cocaine laced cocktail he was talking about <laughs> that day. Um, and I think, um, you know, the other thing is, I'm really interested in people talking about chosen family a lot, you know, like chosen family. But I guess I feel like a lot of families, even non-biological families are unchosen families, where it's just like by virtue of the fact that you all happen to work in this office, you become, especially if you're people who are a little on the lonely side or a little on the isolated side, you become this sort of tacit family. And I think there's something really beautiful about that and people's ability to love each other, even when there's not necessarily a natural affinity where you never choose each other, except that you have to share a desk space. And next thing you know, you end up really caring about people. And I think that's the kind of flip side of that tribalism that Brandon was talking about. It's like, I feel that people are very, myself very much included, apt to sort of draw the boundaries of who we are and who they are and stay firmly on the we side. But the the more optimistic side of that, I think, is that if you spend enough time just in proximity with another person, often the, the perimeter of we will expand to include them. Um, not always and certainly not in every situation, but but I think that's nice how much we can sort of fall in love with each other by accident. I love that sentiment. And and I also wanted to talk about some of the, the crafting of dialogue in the series, because there's a lot of humor mind in the fact that they're always kind of trying to out-liberal one another. So someone says something that is already very left-leaning, and then they're immediately criticized, like, that's not the wording you're supposed to use. You're supposed to say this. Um, and it's constant, this like one-upmanship that they have with each other. So as you were writing all of the scenes, especially when you have all the characters together in a room, how were you kind of like always approaching, okay, well, if like this person uses this phrase, then this is kind of the the next level and this is the next level of it yeah so so for example people being caring about language and the importance of it that's not something that on its face i think is absurd i think there there is importance to language but it's also something that where i relate to where it's like i i, I genuinely at least want to be a better person and to treat people respectfully but sometimes I get very nervous of like, am I using the right term here? I'm not sure. It's like, I'm trying to educate myself as best I can. Um, and I and someone might correct me and I would feel ashamed in, the, in that moment of like, you're right, I should should say this. But, but something with language that I also find is, is sometimes I think we can get so focused on that that we sort of forget that there's other ways in which we can uh, uh, sort of show compassion to, to the world. And, and, and maybe sometimes in, in more tangible ways, but that language is, is um, especially for people who are uh, sort of verbose, uh, edu over-educated maybe people sort of drew, are driven to that. And I think that sometimes is, 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 sometimes it's sad, but it's also sometimes funny to me. That's like, oh, we're putting so much energy into this and I get it, but it's interesting in the ways, it's interesting the ways we fall short of this, of, of the hypocrisies in our lives, or it's like, we're not really doing this. And so when we were crafting the, the, the dialogue for the characters, it really came out of how we and, and the writers try to exist in the world and doing our best to, to say the right thing, but also recognizing when uh, maybe that's, that's uh, going overboard or focusing on the wrong thing. 
And you can tell that the show overall comes from such a place of love of NPR and and of public radio. And so what did you want to make sure to capture from that world? You know, there's certain beats that feel very familiar, like the episode where they do a pledge drive, you know, but even just capturing the essence of there's so much work and care and thought that goes into all of this. Like before you have interview segments on Lauren shows, you show the pre-interviews, the research elements that go into it and the way that it is this real team effort. I mean, I feel really, I'm grateful to NPR and any news outlet or, you know, any outlet that does not exist purely for for profit is um, remarkable that it's been able to, to withstand the crazy contraction that has happened in journalism. And I feel really reliant on, on the reporting from places like NPR and the interviews and and um, yeah, I'm very grateful for for NPR. And I also feel one of the things I'm most moved by in my own life, like sometimes I'll direct commercials, right? And one of the things I try to say when I'm directing a commercial is that I think there's something so optimistic about a group of experts coming together. Maybe they've never met each other before and they all get together and they all solve problems as a group and hopefully treat each other kindly and then vanish into the night. There's something about like strangers coming together to make a complex puzzle work that makes me happy in and of itself. Um, And I think just the way the little ecosystem of NPR functions is kind of amazing is like a little ant farm. Um, But Beyond that, well, well, hold on. I'm talking too much and I'm making less and less sense. Brandon, do you want to take over? I w- I agree with what Zach said. And just the other thing about NPR that I think is is admirable is the vast majority of the people working there, if not almost all of them, are not paid particularly lavishly for the dedication that they, they show to this, that they're people, I think, who really believe in what they're doing, that there's something important to... to um, what their their work is and to delivering the news in as unbiased a way as possible is I think like something that is yeah admirable it, it's like I'm glad that there are people out there who are willing to to dedicate their lives without uh, a ton of financial reward yeah. I, I love that and and also in talking about the interviews that take place within the scope of the show that Lauren conducts um I was so curious about the conversations that you had with guests and kind of the preparation and the details that you gave them in advance, because you have some really unexpected moments. You know, I think like the Mike Tyson interview really shows that there were off the cuff moments. You didn't expect him to talk about, you know, growing older, we lose a lot of things and it's a natural and important part of life. And it's really poignant. But at the end of the day, the interviews also are taking place as scenes against a character within a television show. So there's certain beats that you're trying to hit. And so how did you set about trying to create a space that was accomplishing what you needed for the episode and the story, but also created the space for moments like that? We told the guests very little. We were just like, it would start, Brandon would go on the Zoom camera and say, you're going to see a picture of this stop motion NPR host, a static picture. And you could just react like it's a real NPR interview. You can laugh if something's funny. You can give a real answer. The, you know, just, and then they were totally improvised. With The writers would write a bunch of questions. We'd do a bunch of research on the guests. And then Brandon would be on an iPad sending me thoughts and ideas and things to try. 
But essentially, I have to imagine it probably wasn't that different from how an actual NPR interview occurs. I think then weaving those interviews into the um, larger show was something we had to do a lot of guess and check with in editing, where it'd be like, does this feel lumpy? Does this feel like unintegrated? Does this feel like it's its own kind of little peninsula off the coast of the episode? Um, and yeah, it's kind of a guess and check for that. But the guests were just treated like guests on an interview show. And it's yeah, all, it's all. Yeah. Exception. Like I would like with Tegan and Sarah, because we knew they were Lauren's dream guests. Part of what we had written into the story was that they get sick and, and stop the interview. And so that was one thing, like everything in that interview was unscripted, except at the very end, we were like, would you mind pretending to get sick? Because And, and they were like, sure. And they nailed it. Uh, but otherwise, that whole interview is is just them reacting and not knowing what Lauren's going to say next. The only exception is the interview with Jorge, the pre-interview with Jorge Masvidal. And that was full, that was scripted. I mean, Jorge improvised all this really funny stuff, like his stuff about not wanting to to murk dolphins was um, that was all him. But uh, that was scripted because we wanted to show uh, Fabian. We, we just want we thought it'd be an interesting story. And we like the idea of two people, you know, Jorge Masvidal is a very conservative cage fighter and Fabian is Fabian, you know, this very lefty kind of, you know, progressive from, uh, uh, from the Midwest. And so she's someone who we, we thought it'd be interesting to show how two people from completely different factions could find some moment of mutual respect and fondness and, and vulnerability <laughs> so that one we scripted because it would be hard to do that with a fictional character and a real person <laughs> without a script did did you anticipate the the extent to which people would start really playing into the bit for the show because even just like having Finn Wolfhard have a really random th quote thrown at him and he's like well you know I think your listeners are intelligent enough to be able oh to break God. that down and having Jonathan Van Ness ask Lauren the character do you have a therapist which is a valid <laughs> question at that point in the conversation <laughs> dude those guys were so funny like like Finn was so fucking fun, like so game, so funny, so playful. Like he just was killing us. And it kind of brought out like a weird part of Lauren, like where I felt when I was interviewing him, I got like really punchy and weird. We have a longer form version that we're going to release as a podcast of a lot of these interviews. And with Finn, it was just like, I just felt so happy because he was such a hilarious goofus. And then with Jonathan, they uh, were just like effortlessly hilarious and I, yeah we never asked them to to you know to like co-sign on the reality of the show really but they just did I, I love that and really really enjoyed the experience of watching all of the episodes so congratulations on a fantastic series and thank you so much for sharing all of these details I appreciate it well, thank, thank you, you for really thoughtful questions and thanks for watching it <laughs>